Hello, hello. I am so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab your cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. Recently, the Supreme Court ruled that colleges and universities cannot consider an applicant's race in college admissions. We will continue to see how this affirmative action ruling will affect other institutions and practices. This decision to ignore the historical injustices that affirmative action was meant to address while also advancing an idea of reverse racism is just one example of backlash to attempts for racial equality. In his latest book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress, Wesley Lowry contextualizes our present moment within U.S. history. Wesley Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and one of the nation's leading reporters on issues of race and justice. He is the executive editor of the Investigative Reporting Workshop at American University in Washington, D.C., that trains a rising generation of journalists by partnering them with professional newsrooms to work on projects that fill crucial gaps in media coverage. Wesley is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. He joins us today. Welcome, Wesley. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Of course, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a ton of fun. Yes, me too. You know, I absolutely love the book. Um, I think it is it is crucial for folks to to read it and really get into the heart of what you have laid out here. Um, but today we get a chance to talk a little bit about some of the main ideas in your book. So let's just jump right in with the obvious question, this idea of white lash. What does that mean? Well, I think as we talk about this, we have to start first by defining and thinking about what whiteness is in an American context, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I always, I've been saying this, I think that anytime we talk about race, it's important for us to note and to understand that race is a sociological construct, a societal construct. It's not a biological reality, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's really important. And then people say, oh yeah, of course, right? But I think sometimes when we have these conversations, we have them as if they are these like hardwired biological distinctions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that ethnicity might be or the way that, you know, but but the the reason I say that though is because to understand white lash, we have to understand whiteness, which means we have to understand that whiteness is not a biological thing, but rather it's a social construct we have created here. In the United States of America, we wrote into our laws distinctions between white people and other people, right? Mm-hmm. And initially that meant that, that people who were white were people who were not indigenous and were not black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as other groups began arriving in the United States of America, they had to figure out where on the spectrum they belonged on the spectrum between whiteness and not whiteness. And so when Italians arrived, for example, or Chinese Americans arrived or the Jewish uh, Jews arrived or uh, the Irish arrived, there were these moments where these immigrant groups, some of whom would now be perceived as white mm-hmm. in, a, in American context, initially were not perceived that way. 
one of the, I think the deadliest lynching in American history was of Italians in New Orleans, mm-hmm. right? That And it was racially driven. They were not seen, these Sicilian immigrants were not seen as being white. They were seen as a, a threat to it. So then what gets, gets us to the idea of white supremacy or a system of white supremacy or white violence, right? And I know that definitions aren't fun, and but, but, they, but they matter, right, to talk about mm-hmm. these kind of complicated things. Absolutely. So we get to white supremacy, right? That that we were a a foundationally like white supremacist system, right? That the actual infrastructure of our country, of our laws, created a system where people who were categorized as white received a set of freedoms and liberties and justice that other people didn't receive, mm-hmm. right? And and so that's a white supremacist system. And so because of that, there have always been. And by the way, there are people who are the beneficiaries of that system, the people who are categorized as white. And so there have always been people who have been fighting to undo that white supremacist system, to create a multiracial democracy, a multicultural society, right? There have always been people who have been fighting mm-hmm. for that. And in response, there have always been people who have fought back, who said the status quo works. I'm the beneficiary of it. Mm-hmm. Or who get aggravated, get concerned, get scared in moments when there is then there are steps or there is advancement towards that multiracial democracy, right? That you used to have 200% of the rights. Now you only have 175% of the rights where all you can feel is that you lost 25%, mm-hmm. right? And that's real, right? You feel that loss, right? right. Uh, and so what we see and what I think about as an American white rash are these moments, both explicitly violent, but then also times that are systemic, that are structural, right? Moments where, due to that anxiety of people who are socialized as white, that there is a a backlash and and a lashing out against advances and against steps towards multiracial democracy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Wesley, you said so much there, and I want to kind of unpack some of it because you know, so I'm a sociologist. Um, I I teach my students all the time about, you know, that race is a social construct and we go through a whole semester and they seem to be on board with this idea. But then when it comes to them talking about ideas and really trying to explain um, some of the inequities that we see, I often see students kind of revert back to this idea of biological races and that there are some sort of values or morals assigned um, to, to race as a biological biological construct. So I'm wondering if you could just go a little bit deeper into the idea of whiteness as a social construct and really bring out some of the ways that we've seen benefits or privileges tied to tied to this idea of whiteness. Certainly. And so again, we, we create this as a social and a political and a legal construct. We write it into some of the laws and documents going back to colonial times. Now, we're not even a union. We're not even a country yet. And we are defining people this way. Uh, there, there are theories and there's history to support the idea that we did this and that this was done on purpose in part to uh, create a racial solidarity where a class and economic solidarity didn't exist, right? That in colonial Virginia, for example, you were seeing almost the overthrow of the colony because it was ruled by uh, colonial aristocrats, colonial governors uh, who were heavily taxing and, and taking all the money from the laborers who were largely indentured servants and enslaved people who were both white and black and in some cases indigenous. Mm-hmm. And in order to prevent a multiracial coalition from overthrowing them, which almost happened several mm-hmm. times, 
they began creating these distinctions between the white indentured servants and the and the black enslaved people, right, or the indigenous enslaved people, and and creating a, a hierarchy so that even the poorest, uh, worse off white person could believe that they were not in fact at the bottom of the economic totem pole and believe that they had something to aspire to, right? Mm -hmm. um, what we see moving forward throughout our history is how these ideas of whiteness determine who has access to power, who has access to capital. It's a sensibility that that becomes a, and is created in, in terms of what our majority sensibility is, right? It, it speaks to, and we think about whose stories are prioritized what, what, and, and told, whose experiences are valued, who get whose history we have we've quantified versus whose we've had to go dig up, right? That again, the institutions that make up the foundation of our nation uh, have themselves all been were founded and created at a time not to seek equality or freedom or justice or liberty for everyone, but rather to service a system where there were built-in inequities. And so because of that all of these systems have operated inside of a, a broader kind of system of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for that, because I think it's important for our listeners to really understand the depths of what we're talking about, particularly as we think of being in a post-Obama era, mm -hmm. right? Um, and thinking about, oh, this idea that uh, we are now on equal footing because we have elected um, a Black president. And, you know, your book is talking about how we see this white lash happening. And because of, as you mentioned, um, as you were talking about this idea of um once folks have bought into this idea of whitenesses and have actually received the privileges and benefits of whiteness in a system, right, that puts whiteness at the top of a hierarchy, then any type of equity or moves towards equality feels like you're losing something. And of course, the the instinct is, well, we must protect that. Mm -hmm. 100%, right? This idea that we have to protect that. And it also what it does is it, it's, it skews a perspective, right? That again, you may have, it creates a feeling of scarcity even when you have abundance, mm -hmm. right? You've got 10 Lamborghinis and so we give one to someone else and all you know is you have one fewer Lamborghini. Right. Right, <laughs> like it's not actually an objective measure about whether or not you have enough, whether or not you are doing well, whether or not you've got more than, it's this idea that you have less than we once had, that right. someone else, someone else is now benefiting at your expense. Right. And we see that apply to societal level. Right. Mm -hmm. We see that play out in housing and in education, in, in the way that we segregate ourselves and the response and the backlash very often to these programs. It's really interesting. You know, we were talking about the affirmative action ruling um, mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier and and, you know, Clarence Thomas, a more mm -hmm. conservative black uh, uh, Supreme Court justice. This has been one of his missions in public life to undo affirmative action. And mm -hmm. what is interesting is that when you read his writings about it, when you uh, you should listen to, if you have, folks haven't, uh, my friend Joel Anderson did a great podcast uh, with Slate called Slow Burn, where he uh, tells the story of Clarence Thomas and where he comes from. His four episodes came out this year, and so it was perfectly timed. Mm -hmm. But he, he tells this story about how Clarence Thomas you know, got into his undergrad and I think his law school based on affirmative action policies. Mm -hmm. And he was extremely resentful of the fact that in all of these spaces, he had to interact with white people who were constantly telling him that he didn't deserve to be where he was. Mm -hmm. Now, 
what's interesting is that Clarence Thomas is describing what we would now describe as like a microaggression or as American or as a white lash, right? This mm -hmm. idea that this idea that a step to provide equitable access to Clarence Thomas and other black people of that generation uh, to make it the same as white people was perceived as the white people as coming at their expense and prompted them to express hostility towards him, right? Absolutely. And, and so he describes, he lays out exactly what this American white lash is. Mm -hmm. And as you stated, I mean, just I'm having trouble finding the words right now because we have Clarence Thomas, who is, you know, holding this position highest in the land, um, benefiting from affirmative action and now making, you know, being part of the folks who are making this decision, saying that affirmative action is unnecessary. And as I, I mentioned in, in the intro, even advancing um, implicitly this idea of reverse racism. Mm -hmm. this, this idea that that somehow white Americans are being discriminated against. What's interesting is that there's polling that shows by the end of the Obama administration that 55% of white Americans believe that they are uh, discriminated against racially. That mm -hmm. By having one black president, the average white American now believes they're a racial minority in essence, right? That they face systemic and structural <laughs> discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, I think that speaks to um, the moment we're in, it actually helps begin to explain a lot about mm -hmm. what has happened in our country, how it has operated. And so uh, I, th I think that we have to, now, now one thing that is true, if we're gonna talk about affirmative action, right, which is obviously a specific type of policy and a specific set of policies, right? It's unquestionably true that there are good faith critiques of the application of mm -hmm. given programs, right? That doesn't mean Harvard was doing its thing the way it's supposed to be doing its thing, mm -hmm. right? It is That is not to say, that someone could not create a program under the guise of attempting to achieve more equity that in fact does kind of like proactively discriminate in an unacceptable way against, you know, you know whomever, right? Mm -hmm. But what we know is the, the, the politics of this moment right. falls into a rhetoric and into a moment when so many people believe that there's some type of sweeping structural discrimination against them Mm -hmm. Even as we know that that is not, in fact, the society we live in. Right. Absolutely. You know, when I read that that um, polling data in the book, I was shocked um, at this idea that white folks are feeling as if they are the discriminated class in America. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, here we are in this particular time period um, for us that might seem very new. Right. Particularly given, as you mentioned, the politics of the time, um, the rhetoric of the moment. And for folks, it might seem like, wow, how is this happening now? Um, what is unique about this time? But as you show us throughout the book, this is not something that's wholly unique and that we could not have predicted in many ways. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's that we see throughout our history moments like this. There's a great book everyone should read by Carol Anderson called White Rage. And it talks about historian Carol Anderson. And it talks about and it looks at the the idea that throughout our history, moments of black advancement are the ones that prompt full-throated uh, white rage and attacks. And so she mm -hmm. looks at the period following Reconstruction um, and the rise of Jim Crow. She looks at the periods following civil rights 
and the rise of uh, new versions and new innovations in school segregation to follow the desegregation of public schools. Um, and, and so what we know across our history is that in, in spaces and in moments when when there is black advancement and, and strides towards a multiracial democracy in black in which black people are seen as fully human or, or feel and fully citizen. Right. And not just black people, but also immigrants and refugees, um, people who are not coded as white in our country. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the moments in which there is pushback. And so we look at so many moments throughout our history, the response to the attempt at multiracial government during Reconstruction, the rise of the uh, Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and the uh, and the Jim Crow era, the response to civil rights, which is a massive crackdown on civil liberties, as well as the resegregation of American education via private schools and and um, <clears throat> via private schools and homes, the homeschooling movement. Mm-hmm. And, and now what have we seen in our movement now? Uh, a black man with kind of a funny name, Barack Obama, gets elected president. Mm-hmm. And a movement emerges. And it, that movement seizes control of one of our major political parties. And that movement says that the black guy elected president isn't really one of us. That he's a secret Kenyan Muslim who hates white people, who who doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. These aren't my words. These are literal attacks right. that happen, mm-hmm. right? And what we're going to do is we're going to elect a guy who set out on a crusade to prove that this guy wasn't a real American and who promises us that if we elect him, he's going to build a wall on our border to prevent other scary brown people from coming in. And he's going to ban all Muslims from coming from our country coming to our country, right? We're in a, we see in this mm-hmm. moment a spike in white supremacist terror incidents and attacks. Um, we see, The FBI says that the biggest terror threat facing the United States of America today is homegrown domestic white supremacist terrorism, right? And so what we see in this moment is a rise and a spike and a demonstration of a white lash, of, of, of a violent, interpersonal, systemic, and structural response to what is perceived as a step towards multiracial democracy by people who are worried that they will be the losers of history, that multiracial democracy will will take something from them that they can't get back. We'll be right back. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and we are chatting with Wesley Lowry. He is the author of American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. You know, what I appreciate about your book is that you spend a lot of time really talking about this process of of white radicalization, and particularly in ways that I think that we often don't hear um, in the media, right? You're able in this book to really give us a history, both of of the different um, uh, waves of white supremacist movement um, and charting it to its present iteration, but then also talking through, We I think we have this idea of folks are radicalized um, in, in a variety of different ways. Um, but I'm wondering if you could kind of share what you found in your work when we think about um, white radicalization. Sure. I think there are a few things. I think the first is that I think we have to challenge the the predominant societal belief that there are like angels and demons, good people and bad people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, well, this person is just evil, 
So therefore, there's nothing we can understand. There's no way we can explain it, blah, blah, blah. I don't believe that, right? I, I think that humans are humans. Mm -hmm. uh, humans do good things and bad things. No one's all good. No one's all bad. Um, and, that, and that we are socialized in the way we are socialized and in, in, in a, a stew of all types of structures and systems that influence us in different ways. And that very often we're all acting and, and reacting out of a place of our own unresolved traumas, right? And so what's interesting is so many of these guys, um, you know, and a lot of them are men. It's not, not exclusively men. There are some women, but mm -hmm. a lot of these guys are responding to what are, you know, in a lot of ways, very both basic and common childhood traumas, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's relationships with their parents, whether that's concerns with bullying or ostracized, uh, you know, being ostracized, whether it's about, whether it's drug and alcohol, obese issues that stem from being abused or from other things, right? Where what they're seeking, what they're searching for is community and belonging, that they right. want to, and, and a belief system and an ideology that tells them that they're victims, that that it's that there's a conspiracy against mm -hmm. them, that there's someone they can blame for their problems. And so it's not that they're a loser. It's not that they they screwed up. In fact, they are the only ones who know what's really happened. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's the, the draw of conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Right. The belief that you can see something that explains the world that no one else can see. Because now you're no longer just a speck on, you know, on a, a, a ball planet floating around in the sky. You are, you're in the movie. Yeah. You're the main character. You're the important person who has to wake up everyone and open their eyes to this thing that no one else can see and no one else understands. And they won't let you talk about. And the books are secret. And you got to pass them. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so you start to see how this then self-perpetuates. Because once mm -hmm. you believe that, once you're on that train, any attempt to dissuade you of it only further proves the point because everyone's out against you and they're like, they don't want you to know this. And, and of course it got banned from the internet because of the, it, everything feeds in the conspiracy. It's a snake that it's eating its tail constantly. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what we see these guys, the way they get radicalized and, and the way they get radicalized also via our public square, right? Because mm -hmm. we know these ideas are intoxicating. It makes it extremely important for us to be aware and to be smart about what we allow into our public square in the first place. Absolutely. Because what we see is that, you know, there's a sociologist, Gordon Alpert, who writes this like definitive study on prejudice, how it manifests, what it looks like. And he writes about how we all have prejudice, right? We walk down the street and we're like, oh, that person's attractive. That person's unattractive. I like their voice. I They look scary. They look safe. They look, right? And those prejudices are based on our own experiences, mm -hmm. right? Like where, where who has been trustworthy to us in the past or who is familiar, who isn't, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so those prejudices are human. It's not something that makes you, again, a terrible person or X, Y, and Z, right? The issue is those prejudices that we all possess, they can start moving along a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. that when we see people in our public, in the public square, in positions of power and authority, whether it be a parent or a teacher or a president of the United States, right? When people who we admire, who have power, reflect our prejudices back to us, when they say the thing we're thinking or that mm -hmm. we're ashamed that we're thinking, mm -hmm. it provides us a permission structure to not be ashamed of those prejudices, first of all. Second of all, to, to voice them ourselves, then further amplifying them, 
Three, to then begin operating and acting out our discrimination. It's where we go from prejudice to discrimination, where we start, what we start seeing is we start with segregation. So I'm just going to stay away from those people. Mm -hmm. Then we move to active discrimination. I'm not going to invite that person to the party, or I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to hire someone like that, or we're not going to tell so-and-so about this. Then you move to like interpersonal animus where you're more quick to snap at someone who, you know, who bumps into you uh, on the street or who pulls up, up next to you in the car, right? Or, or more likely to get in a fight with someone to feel a physical threatening and eventually you get to the point where you actually have full-fledged societal violence being committed because the people who are the recipients of this prejudice have been so dehumanized by this language, by this rhetoric, and by this scale mm -hmm. of, of aggression that, that now, you know, when someone is no longer seen as a human in your eyes, you don't have to treat them like one. Mm -hmm. and, and so we see this and we see this play out time and time again. And we see, and we see the effort. Um, you, you look at someone like Dylan Roof, who committed the shooting in Charleston in 2015. And this is a black kid or a white kid, I'm sorry, in, in South Carolina who's got you know, base level normal prejudice and who, and following the news coverage of the Trayvon Martin case, begins Google searching for more information about quote unquote black on white crime and homicide. Mm -hmm. And he finds himself on these white supremacist message boards and websites and ideologies. And before long, he is writing a manifesto about the quote Jewish problem and marching into a, a, a church to murder innocent black churchgoers as they pray, right? Mm -hmm. How do you get to that point? It's when you dehumanize and villainize people so much that you no longer see them as human, that you no longer see them as entitled to equality and safety and justice, and in which you are willing to believe these vile conspiracy theories about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I was reading your book, you know, something that continued to come up to me, and I love how you include all of these great references um, to other work. So if folks want to learn more, they can definitely grab, you know, some additional readings. Um, but, you know, to your point about this dehumanization process, as you talk about in your book, and even as we were talking today, you know, our nation has been built upon these ideas of othering, right? Whether it's through xenophobia or other forms of, of racism and, and discrimination. And so to some degree, we're already exposed to these ideas. Um, and so once, as you mentioned, we see folks who are in positions of power espousing those same ideas and, and doing so freely, it does feel give people permission, as you noted, um, to say those same ideas out loud and then to start acting on them. Um, and so I think we're, as you mentioned, in, in a, a in a unique space where you have the internet, where it makes it much easier to continue to find more and more about these, these ideas, these very dangerous ideas, but also to connect with other people who are believing these same things as well. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a sense of being able to find community. Think about what internet and social media and our phones, what they've done. They've allowed mm -hmm. us to connect with people all around the world. And they've allowed us to do that in beautiful ways. They then rise to movements that wouldn't have existed to build friendships and, and connections with people you never could have found otherwise. Mm -hmm. But that those tools isn't aren't only available to people who are trying to all talk about the love their love of their favorite novel or share their their oil paintings <laughs> or mm -hmm. or recipes. Right, it's available to everyone. There are different political persuasions or different backgrounds, and so what we've seen is the ability of not only of people to find those who share and express the same prejudices, 
but for them to egg each other on and to take each other on a journey farther and deeper into some of these depths. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we see what happens time and again, as you talk about in the book, um, some very key instances of racial violence. Um, And something else that I really appreciated is, you know, expanding this idea, as you do in your book, that is not just white supremacy that is impacting Black folks, but also anyone who is deemed as not white. And I think in this nation, we, you know, our discussion about race and racism is very much tethered to a white Black binary, um, which limits some of our ability to actually address racial racial inequality more broadly. I think that it does. And I think I'm someone, in part because of the body of work I've done, that focuses a lot on anti-Blackness and and anti-Black racism, I understand and really appreciate the distinct and unique histories of these different types of of, of prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. But what is also true is understanding where there is overlap and overlay, because I think sometimes we go, okay, that's someone else's problem. That's not on me. One of the examples I like to use is the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh, uh, the, I think the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history. And The reason that that man walked into that synagogue and killed those Jewish people is because he believed that man, that 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 synagogue was helping resettle refugees in the United States of America. And and that was going to lead to the great replacement to a white genocide of of white people. So it's unquestionably an anti-Semitic attack. A conspiracy theory at the heart of this white supremacist belief is anti-Semitic, right? The Jews are pulling the levers of all this stuff. But it's also a xenophobic attack. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And so to understand it only in one lens doesn't actually help us understand it in both. And so we have to look at both of those things. And so, and by the way, if you are someone who's working on the behalf of refugees or or of immigrants, right, or someone who cares about their safety and their livelihood, it really matters that mm-hmm. this has happened. Right. You have to understand it. You can't say, oh, that's for the that's for the Jewish not you know anti-hate groups to deal with. Right. The the person who walks in the mosque, you know, does it because, you know, there aren't enough immigrants close enough or he can't find enough Jews or the black people are far away, right? That it's the same, this hostility manifests in all of these different ways towards non-white people. And so we can both understand how these things have manifested specifically against one group or another over history and how they exist today, while also understanding that all these things work in concert together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So important. And I think you do a great job throughout the book really explaining that so we can have a fuller understanding of of this moment that we're in, but also where we have been throughout our history as well. We'll be right back. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and this morning we're here with Wesley Lowry. His latest book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Um, something that you've mentioned um, throughout our conversation um, is this idea of these different narratives that we're, we're learning. And one thing um, that I feel like is very important, and you mentioned in the book as well, is really, you know, the public square and, and how media is covering a lot of these different events. And One thing that we've seen, I think, maybe growing in the past several years is this idea that we have to give, um, you know, airtime to, quote unquote, both sides. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you see as the media's role um, in the type of rhetoric that we're seeing um, very much proliferating throughout our society right now. You know, I think the media plays a big role because I think the media, while we're not gatekeepers of the public square, I do think we're the facilitators of the public square. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't get to decide who's in the room. We don't get to decide what those people want to say or what they want to do. 
We, but we are the people walking around holding the microphone. And so we can't always stop someone when they want to say, you know, when they do a, a comment instead of a question or when they ignore the question we mm-hmm. asked, right? But we do actually get to decide who has the microphone. Now, someone can just go stand in the corner screaming, right? And that's not to say mm-hmm. they won't get any of their message out and people won't see any of it, but we still do hold the biggest microphone, mm-hmm. right? And I think we have a responsibility to how we facilitate that conversation. And we have to we have to make curatorial decisions about who we call on, how we call on them, uh, and, and and what and also what questions we ask them, right? That there are some questions that that are not worth asking in the public square. There are some mm-hmm. debates not worth having, uh, and I think that we could just do a much much better job of that. I I think that there is a when we look at issues of of our democracy, we have to think about what is our role as the media, right? Mm-hmm. Institutions are the things that hold up; they're the pillars that hold up a society. Right. And so the media is one of those institutions. And so what is it that we're holding up? What is our foundational cornerstone? Mm -hmm. And and I think we've operated for a long time that our foundational cornerstone is speech. Right. Is debate is open. And and that and that, uh, you know, I I think that there is a, uh, you know, I understand that argument and there's a a liberal argument for it. And and I, you know, as someone who works in the media, care a lot about speech Mm -hmm. and public debate. But I do wonder if if it is possible uh, to to have that be coherent with a society that now wants to be a multiracial democracy mm-hmm. that what do you do with people who would use their speech to undermine other people's humanities yeah. that there are moments and there are points where you cannot be an absolutist about both things mm-hmm. right you either let the charlottesville rally happen or you do not Right. Mm-hmm. And and what we know is that when people express dehumanizing language and hatred and rally in those ways, it leads to violence. Mm-hmm. It, it's not an opinion. It's not an idea. We, we know it historically. Right. And so we have to make a decision about whether we will be a society. And again, this is not an argument about sometimes speech is violent. No, no, no. But there are types of speech that lead to violence. We know that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, there, and look, and there actually is a, a good faith academic debate to be had about if speech can be violence. Next one, but but setting that aside, right, people in the public square like to jump on that formulation. So let's set that aside. Mm-hmm. Let's we know that when types of people can be routinely dehumanized in the public square and, and people who have been historically dehumanized in the public square, we know when that kicks up, more of those people lose their lives. Mm-hmm. So if we are a nation, if we are a country that values first and foremost that all men are created equal, or all people are created equal, all humans are created equal, then, and we are one that seeks now to be a multiracial democracy where each individual has access to the rights and liberties and justice promised in our founding documents, then that would require us to think about what role our institutions play in reinforcing that idea, right? And that mm-hmm. our institutions play different roles. That something can be legal, but the media can play the role of keeping it out of, of our conversation, 
right? Mm -hmm. Something can be legal, uh, but a bank can decide not to lend the money or not to allow them to, to check it, you know, to work at such place. Something can be legal, but it can be taught in a certain way in schools that makes it clear that it's unacceptable, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen, and then by the way, there, there can be changes to what is legal and what is not through the through the legal system and structure. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the reality is we have to decide. And mm -hmm. what I would suggest is, and this is a really hard space to get into, it's easy in more civil rights spaces and activist spaces, it's much harder in media spaces because media people are very knee-jerk, free speech absolutist, mm -hmm. right? And I get it, I understand it. I mean, I, I um, you know, I care a lot and I work I'm on the board of any number of press freedom groups. It, it, the First Amendment and it matters a lot to me. Mm -hmm. And also, there is a real conversation about where these lines are, what the trade-offs are, and that there are societies, Germany, for example, where there are laws and restrictions about what you can do and what you can't do. You know who would not have allowed the Charlottesville rally? Germany. <laughs> But I don't know that anyone would suggest that Germany is not a free society that does not value speech and does not value debate. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that what we understand is just because something has been one way in the past doesn't mean it has to be that way forever in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I was listening to you just now is is making me think of, you know, living in that both and right where you know, both things can be true or something can be true, but also something else can be true. We need to think about that. And I'm just wondering, you know, are we even able to have these type of nuanced conversations in the public square where it does seem like particularly um, with Trump um, has given way to a type of speech where, oh, you can say anything um, from a public platform as an elected official, as a person in power, and it's just okay, um, where we have where we're not having a lot of that dialogue anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm definitely thinking, you know, more about this. How can we actually have um, dialogue that maybe leads to some sort of changes where we are acknowledging, you know, what our shared collective values are, hopefully these ideas that, that, you know, we are equal, that, you know, we have, that we all should have the same rights. And I'm not sure, you know, if we, if we will get there, what will, what will need to happen in order for us to get there? Well, and I think it's important for us to remember that there's still ongoing discussion and debate of this, right? That not mm -hmm. everyone believes we should have the same rights. Not everyone believes the, you know, I, I, not everyone believes we should continue to have multiracial democracy the way that we have it currently, right? Right. And, and so I think that that's something we have to think about and something we have to to navigate. And so uh, I think that there's a a real, you know, difficulty in having these conversations in public and having these conversations in this public square and it's almost becomes impossible to have serious conversations in public and in the public square mm -hmm. with the way that our information ecosystem works where everything is an argument everything is debate everything is partisan everything is it what we know is when we discuss hard things the way you discuss them and the way you move through them is through kind of like love and sensitivity and good faith and understanding and right Mm -hmm. you and your partner got to discuss something difficult you're not like you know what's the best way to do this let's go on cable news <laughs> and then like if we could get like two minutes with a moderator interrupting us we can solve like what state we should be in or where which college acceptance you should take <laughs> or like if this straw was the last straw or you're really moving out right we right or discuss any difficult thing in our personal life in any of the forums we have created in public life to discuss difficult things. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
<laughs> so like let's solve racism and patriarchy like and let's do it like <laughs> like I said, let's do it on live television right. let's do it on the internet with a bunch of random people who don't know us and we can only write in sentence fragments All right, that'll work you know right oh why isn't this working i just don't understand <laughs> <laughs> so you don't realize what we're doing right <laughs> this wasn't gonna work Right. Mm, yes, absolutely. You know, but as you as you mentioned, you know, I'm I'm thinking through these things, uh, particularly as being, you know, being a sociologist, being a professor um, in Tennessee, um, having our our newest version of de- of a divisive concepts bill um, gone into effect, um, and so thinking through too, like how do I, you know, have these type of facilitate these type of discussions in a classroom, right? Um, because I know that young people, people who are listening, you know, want to understand the moment that we're in, want to have the the tools to understand it, but also to make hopefully positive social change. Um, so these are all, you know, questions um, that I, that I am personally, you know, working through in this moment. And so what I'm hearing is that I shouldn't set up a, a, a Twitter chat and have my students just, just talk at each other um, on the internet. Right. <laughs> oh, see, but at least though, at least your students are in community with each other. Yes. They've done mm-hmm. the same reading or at least pretending to have done the same reading. Right. Yes. That they have things that they have things that are it, it's why now look I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend discussing difficult things via text message even with people you know closely but that's be- we have a way better chance of that working than like with a literal random person mm-hmm. right like sometimes you can navigate difficulties but let's think about it. how many of us getting fights with our parents or with their loved ones or their, you know spouses right be- because we talked about something hard over text message and there was no tone there was no context it was no we were reacting very literally to the words that were said not to mm-hmm. the other stuff, right? Right. And so I think that there is a real, um, you know, there's something to be said about how do we facilitate conversation? How do we facilitate conversation that is, has the ability or the potential to actually be productive? Mm-hmm. And I think that very often requires some level of shared stakes, of shared community, of shared background, right? So again, your students at least yeah, kind of know each other. You guys have had conversations. You can you can reference well, but because last week in the you know there's there are, you know, and, and I think increasingly across the country we have less and less of that. We're in mm-hmm. different information ecosystems. We're consuming different popular culture. We're listening to different music. We live in different places. What's actually like in my neighborhood in my town is actually totally different than what it's like where someone else of different politics lives because we've sorted geographically that way. Mm-hmm. We are literally having the same conversation, but having it about different worlds because we live in different worlds. Absolutely. And I think that's so important to remember. We do very much value our our lived experience as the true experience, right? And so we're often uh, missing each other in conversation. Um, and so I think it's important, as you, as you noted, that we build these relationships and particularly that we have a shared source of, of knowledge that we're operating from, right? Like my students who pretend to do the reading or who might ask ChatGPT for a summary of mm-hmm. the reading, um, you know, but at least having some sort of shared understanding understanding that we can then work through together as we have some of these difficult conversations. Um, I see your book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress, as that sort of text that can serve as a shared um, foundation of knowledge as we have some of these 
difficult conversations. Um, and also, since you did mention Allport, you know, what's coming to mind is Allport's contact theory. So it's not just, um, he didn't just have a theory about how we we move from these attitudes and actions um, that are, are very much about, um, you know, discrimination um, or even potentially genocide, but also he had a theory about how we actually can address these prejudices as well. And so thinking about who we are in relationship with um, and, and how we foster relationships so that we can actually learn about one another and alongside with one another as well. Exactly. No, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and, I, and I think it's important, you know, now, and I, but I do think that what we have to do is we have to think about in the application, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there's a desire sometimes for a belief that like the passage of time will just solve it. Right. <laughs> well, because like our kids are going to grow up around like some black kids and there'll be immigrants here. And it's like, no, no, no. What's going to happen is we're going to construct entire like, like like new structures to segregate ourselves. Right. <laughs> right. That the, the belief or the idea was that the desegregation of public schools was just going to fix all this and solve all this. Not not among everyone. I'm not saying the civil rights activists thought this. Right. Yeah. But mm -hmm. among many of the white moderates, like, you know, white liberals. Right. And even some of the black liberals. Right without the thinking about and the consideration of the reality that, no, what's going to happen is we're going to construct an entire parallel education system to, to maintain that segregation. Mm -hmm. That when people, when Black people start moving in these neighborhoods, white people are going to literally build new neighborhoods called the suburbs to get away from them, right? Mm -hmm. And so yes. we, we cannot assume that steps towards that creating that contact will, will in fact guarantee that there is sustained contact. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it is a very specific type of contact, specific type of relationships. And importantly, as you mentioned before, that idea of shared stakes, right, that we see ourselves um, trying to accomplish the same goal um, and not simply just, you know, waving at a neighbor down the street as we are, are secretly, you know, trying to move. Right. Um, so absolutely very well, important. When mm -hmm. we think about this idea, we talk about the idea in Black political science of linked fate, the mm -hmm. idea that Black Americans across the political spectrum, Black conservatives, believe that their fate and their outcome are linked to other Black Americans, right? Uh, which is one of the reasons why you see in a lot of ways such ideological consistency among Black Americans, not that there's not a diversity of belief, right? But that there is a, a relative consistency of behavior because what people recognize and understand is that if you are hostile to some Black Americans, even if you agree with my politics, you are bad for me. Mm -hmm. and so you have people routinely voting for politicians, in Black, America, Black Americans routinely voting for politicians with whom they actually disagree with on a lot of issues, but who they see as correct on the one issue or the best available option on the one issue that is supreme, which is the linked fate of Black Americans, mm -hmm. right? But if you are prejudiced or racist against Black people, this ain't gonna work for me. Right. Not theoretically, this isn't some like virtuous stand. It's like, I can't trust you. This is gonna <laughs> not work out for me. Mm -hmm. and, and, so what's, we're more, and so what we have to think about in terms of contact theory and what we have to think about in terms of how we create a multiracial democracy is a world in which linked fate transcends these socialized racial groups mm -hmm. and in which men truly believe they cannot receive justice in a world where women cannot receive justice, where, uh, you know, where 
straight people genuinely believe that they do not receive justice if they don't live in a world where LGBTQ people receive justice, where, you know, like, and where white Americans genuinely believe that if this is a world that does not provide justice for black Americans, for brown Americans, or for non-white Americans, that that is a world where they cannot receive justice either. That if we can cre- achieve that linked faith, that's what then actually creates the type of coalition that works in a multiracial democracy. Yes, I, you know, and I'm I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you know, what would it take for that type of interest convergence to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like a very big hurdle, um, you know, knowing what we know. Um, but I am hopeful. Um, what is giving you hope these days? You know, I think about, you know, as I said earlier, I think about our history as a tug of war. And so every time there is a pull in favor of white supremacist violence and and, and and backlash, that gives rise to new and a new generation of anti-racist activism. Mm-hmm. And so in these moments, what we see are young activists, old activists, elected officials who are making strides in so many places around the country um, that are interested, right? We see uh, the reparations movement is at the height it's ever been at in American history, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that there is a real, uh, again, it's a tug of war. Sometimes the question we ask is, are things getting better? And the answer is both yes and no, mm-hmm. because as as there are strides towards multiracial democracy, it will create and propel a more fervent and desperate white supremacist movement. There will be backlash. And then that backlash will in turn lead to the next movement of anti-racist activism and strides towards multiracial democracy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Wesley, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, Thank you so much for writing this book. I hope that everyone reads it. Um, Thank you again for your time. Of course. Thank you. Thank you again to Wesley Lowry. His book is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. I think this book is so important to helping us understand the moment that we're in, but most importantly, for contextualizing it within the longer history of the United States. In it, he also talks about six cases of white racial violence that have occurred over the past decade. Some of them that you will likely be familiar with, for example, like the racist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I think it's important to understanding what white lash is, but then also thinking about what actions might we take as we work towards anti-racism. Like any good piece of of writing, this book definitely moved me. It moved me to feel a lot of different feelings, but also movement to action. And I think that's really key. As Wesley talked about today, it's not just a matter of time passing and things are going to magically get better, but there has to be coordinated action to work towards positive social change. 
For today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote from James Baldwin from his 1962 essay titled, As Much Truth As One Can Bear. He says, we are the generation that must throw everything into the endeavor to remake America into what we say we want it to be. Without this endeavor, we will perish. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every Monday morning. Make sure you subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation. And if you're anything like me, then there are definitely some moments in today's chat that I want to go back and dig deeper into, listen to again. Uh, Maybe that's you too. And subscribing in podcast format allows you to do that. And of course, makes it easy for you to share this show with a friend. I can't wait to be back with you again next Monday morning.